Welcome to your church. No matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, you are welcome. You are welcome whether you believe in God all of the time, or some of the time, or none of the time. No matter what body brought you here, no matter who you love, you are welcome here at First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. I'm Reverend Bob LaValle, and I'm delighted to be joined here today by our worship leader, John Eldridge, and our musician, Dave Edwards. And our Zoom DJ is Cy Schuster. And I want to say a big thanks to our tech volunteers today, Dan Small, Arnie Golarud, Michaela Renz-Whitmore, who, by the way, is also chair of our board of trustees, and Bill Miller. And I want to thank everybody who is involved in co-creating this moment of worship that we're all sharing now. And that includes everyone who's just coming to be a part of it, to look on, to pray, to sit, to to be part of the gathered community. Thank you to all of you for that. Our music director, Susan Peck, is on sabbatical, a well-deserved sabbatical until August. And our senior minister, Reverend Angela Herrera, is off this weekend. But Angela did create today's Time for All Ages, which was also edited by her son, Mauricio Herrera. Thank you in absentia to Mauricio and Angela for making that happen. <clears throat> If this is your first or second time with us and you're comfortable with it, we'd love you to put your name and location in the chat so we can say hello and just see that you're here. We'll go ahead and do that. And in the meantime, John has an announcement for us. Good morning. Great to be with you again. Yes, we have one announcement. 2021 UU Kids Camp is less than two weeks away, but there's still time to register. This year, we're having a day camp at our very own church campus, July 22nd through the 24th. All children and youth rising third grade to seniors are welcome to attend. To register and for more information, go to uukidscamp.blogspot.com and click on the online registration tab. Then on the 22nd, bring your medical info and pickup sheets, and that's it. Let the good times roll. You can email Alana Rodriguez with any questions. As we light our congregational chalice with these words from James Baldwin, please feel free to light your own chalice. Any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has known it, the loss of all that gave one identity the end of safety. Any, only when a person is able without bitterness or self-pity to surrender a privilege that they have long possessed, that they are set free for higher dreams, for greater privileges. They used to tell me I was building a dream. So I followed the mob. If there was earth to plow or guns to bear, I was right there out on the job. They used to tell me I was building a dream with peace and glory ahead. So why should I be standing in line? 
just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad Made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun Of bricks and mortar and lime Once I built a tower Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits Gee, we look swell Full of that Yankee doodly-dum Half a million boats Went slogging through hell Me, I'm the kid with the drum Say, don't you remember They called me Al It was Al all the time Say, don't you remember that I'm your pal Brother Can you spare a dime? We are Unitarian Universalist We are a people of faith with open minds, loving hearts, and helping hands. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there lived an emperor with a very inflated opinion of himself. Because he was rich and powerful, he believed he must be special. In fact, he believed God had blessed him with all of his riches and good looks more than everyone else because he was better than everyone else. The emperor especially loved new clothes, so much that he had made the people he ruled pay extra taxes just to fund his fashion habit. After all, he thought, he deserved it. He had a different costume for every mood. One day, two strangers came to the emperor's city. They said that they were fashion designers and that they knew how to sew the finest suits imaginable. Not only were the colors and the fabric extraordinarily beautiful, but in addition, the suits had the amazing property that only God's favorite people could see them. To everyone else, they were invisible. The emperor immediately gave the two strangers a whole bunch of money to make him a suit. They set up their sewing machines and they pretended to go to work, although there was no fabric in their hands. They asked for the finest buttons and purest gold buckles, all of which they hid away, continuing to work on the empty sewing machines 
all day long. The emperor said he looked forward to seeing their creation, but he was a little bit uneasy. Of course, he told himself he had nothing to fear because he was sure he was among God's favorite people. After all, God had made him the richest, most powerful person in the land. But still, the emperor decided to send his friend, the minister, in to take a look. Surely a minister was also one of God's favorite people. But when the minister got there and the two strangers invited him to come close and look at their progress, the minister only saw them holding up empty air. Uh-oh, he thought to himself, no one can find out about this. What do you think? said one of the strangers. Oh, it is so elegant, said the minister, truly special. I'll tell the emperor how beautiful it is. He went back to the emperor and did just that, even though he had not seen anything at all. And then, as if to prove how much the new suit had impressed him, he suggested that the emperor wear the suit in a procession all through the town to really show it off. Meanwhile, the strangers kept pretending to work. Everybody could see how busy they seemed, even if no one would admit that they couldn't see any actual fabric. The strangers cut the air with large scissors. They sewed with needles, but no thread. Finally, they announced, behold, the suit is finished. The emperor came to them. One stranger raised their arms as though they were holding something, while the other said, look at these pants. Here is the jacket and a matching tie. They are as light as spider webs. You might think you didn't have a thing on, but that's the good thing about them. Oh yes, said the emperor, but he couldn't see a thing, for nothing was really there. They offered to put the new suit on him right there in front of a large mirror. The emperor took off his clothes and the strangers pretended to dress him piece by piece with the new ones that were to be fitted. The emperor came out and looked into the mirror. What do you think he saw? Goodness, they suit you so well. What a perfect fit, the strangers said. Yes, I'm ready for my procession, said the emperor. Don't they look stunning? And he turned once more to look in the mirror because it had to appear as though he were admiring himself in all his glory. The emperor walked through the streets of town in the procession and all the people in the street secretly gasped because they saw him with no clothing at all. But to their neighbors, they said, wow, the emperor's new clothes are wonderful. And their neighbors replied, really? We have never seen anything like it. No one wanted to admit that they couldn't see them because they wanted to be thought of as God's favorite people. All except for one person, a young girl. She knew what the emperor thought, that he was so rich and powerful because he was God's favorite, but she didn't buy it. It was obvious that the emperor had inherited a lot of money from his parents who had also inherited their wealth. 
and she saw how hard her own parents worked cleaning the streets of the town and how much money they had to pay in taxes to the emperor who already had so much. The townspeople went along with this because it seemed impossible to change. It looked to her like this was why he was so rich and powerful, nothing else. The girl trusted the evidence in front of her. So she said what no one else would. The emperor is naked. The crowd fell silent. No one saw the strangers with their bags of money and buttons and gold buckles slip out the back. All eyes were on the emperor who was frozen. He quickly regained his composure and began to walk confidently again as though nothing had happened, but it was too late. The people who used to believe that they were poorer than the emperor because God liked him more had already seen too much. The end. Delightful. Let's pause the chat for a few moments during the meditation and the prayer. Last week, as we did our meditation, I invited folks to turn on their cameras and move into a gallery mode. And I invite you to do that again for this meditation as well, or if you're more comfortable with your camera off, that's fine too. But do consider that seeing each other's faces is a kind of prayer. <clears throat> Let's prepare to meditate just for a moment here. So find a comfortable seat, feel the places where your body is supported. Perhaps your feet are on the ground, perhaps your hands are resting someplace comfortable. Let's take an inhale and bring our shoulders up to our ears and exhale, soften down. We'll do that two more times. Inhale up. Exhale down. One last softening. The time of meditation of turning our attention to our breath can be an opportunity to step off the treadmill of our minds, the compulsive, what's next, what's next, what's next, that our minds can demand of us. We can let go of that focus on the future and stay perhaps for a moment in the present and be content with what we have. In that spirit, we'll sit in sacred silence for two minutes.
please share your joys and concerns in the chat bar now as prompted by the video. If you cannot share in the chat bar today for any reason, we still want to hear from you. Contact us at caring at uuabq.org. Breathe 
we are companions to each other in this journey of life. Companions in the joy, like the rain and storytelling, the joys of anniversaries, congratulations, Matt and Gabriel, joy of hikes, and gathering together in person in small ways. And we are companions in the sorrows and the concerns. And we lift up Gail's brother, Glenn, as he struggles with his illness. And we think of Marilyn Hill, longtime congregant who has entered hospice. And we mourn with Jesse and Joelle, their losses. All these joys and concerns and the joys and concerns held in our hearts unspoken, but no less keenly felt, all of them we lift up to the great powers of celebration and healing and renewal. These powers known by many names. Please join me in a moment of prayer. We lift up all of those who help us to live in these times. Let us, as we reopen, let us not forget the workers who truly are essential, who make it possible to, for us to have our day by days and may they know that through the work of their hands, they bring love and life into the world. Lift up all those who are suffering, suffering from illness or loneliness. May they find healing and comfort soon. In this time of emergence and transition and transformation, we pray for our congregation. We pray that love and our mission of hospitality and service guide us in the weeks and months to come we pray that we keep each other close as we navigate uncharted terrain as we step out of the comforting light of knowing and certainty however weird it was it was what we knew and were certain about and how we can we feel our way into this new iteration of community may we see what's beautiful and holy in our community. May we see what's beautiful and holy in each other. May we see what's beautiful and holy in ourselves. And may we all be held in the heart of love. Peace be with you.
Our reading today is excerpted from an interview with professor and writer Paul Watschel entitled On the Poverty of Affluence. Though most of human, through most of human history, people have received their primary gratifications from personal relationships, a sense of community, a sense of being part of something larger. It's almost as if we were biologically programmed to be gratified in this way. The present emphasis on seeking gratification through material goods is relatively new. Throughout history, material goods were simply not available to most people, much less an increase in goods. There were always small numbers of elite individuals who could accumulate goods, but most people couldn't. Thus, we're now seeking our gratification in a way that is not consonant with our history. As a result, we're losing many of the sources of gratification that were once available. The competitive nature of our society has led not only to alienation from the family, but also the loss of a sense of community and of cooperation. There's a wonderful book, it's a true story. Uh, it's called Mountains Beyond Mountains by a writer named Tracy Kidder. And Kidder writes about a man named Paul Farmer, who's a doctor from Boston who founded a healthcare organization called Partners in Health. And he started Partners in Health in Haiti in 1987, and it now serves in a variety of countries. And in the book, Kidder follows Farmer around Haiti for months and he sees the most devastating poverty and he sees how Dr. Farmer is struggling to shovel against the tide of huge systems of generational trauma and poverty and colonization and exploitation, extraction. At one point in the book, Farmer goes to Paris to meet with potential funders and Kidder goes along and they're riding a taxi through Paris. Everywhere they look are magnificent buildings, statues carved from marble, extravagant gardens. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and they're stunned into silence for a while. And then Dr. Farmer says, it would be easy to say wow, we're in a different world. But that would be wrong. We're in the exact same world as Haiti right now because it was the exploitation of Haiti by the French that created the excessive wealth that made all these buildings possible. It's one world. 
We live in a system that has a long history of extracting value from the vulnerable and accuse, accumulating amazing wealth in the hands of a few. It's an old story, and the extremes of it seem to ebb and flow. I think we're in a moment of extreme extraction now, the kind of new Gilded Age. All of this is to say we're all living in one world. We're all weathering the same storm. But a few of us have very nice boats, a couple of us, and most of us don't, and a whole lot of us are clinging to the side of the lifeboat. The evidence that capitalism is broken is all around us as we emerge during the pandemic, from the pandemic, we saw it during the pandemic as well too. The richest among us grow richer while real, real wages and wealth stagnate for the rest of us. The richest among us don't pay taxes Many folks don't expect to do better than their parents did. These are facts. But what I see changing is the willingness of people to accept this status quo. I see anger at businesses with practices that make climate change worse, not better. I see outrage at healthcare being attached to unemployment, to, to employment, pardon me. It's unemployment that causes the loss of healthcare just when you need it most. And I'm really intrigued by the moment we're in right now as businesses open up and find that some folks are no longer wanting to work for them under the old incentives, the old conditions. And I love that folks are insisting on receiving a living wage and predictable hours and a baseline of respect. And can I admit to, <laughs> This is not very ministerial of me, I gotta admit, but I gotta, I have to admit to enjoying a little bit the outrage of business owners who put up signs saying, no one wants to work. Because, you know, I think most folks love to work. Most folks love being part of a greater effort to make something happen. Most folks love the feeling of doing a job well. It feels innate with us. What most folks don't love is the feeling of being taken advantage of. They don't love working more than full-time and not being able to afford a place to live. They don't love working for 40 years and not being able to retire with some dignity and comfort. You know, under this late-stage capitalism we're in, for too long, businesses have gotten a pass. The ability of a business to exist has become some kind of right, some kind of higher good that trumps every other consideration. But I'm here today to say that if a business has a financial model that doesn't include paying its working workers a living wage, then that business shouldn't exist. That's a business of a broken model and an exploitive model. I'm reminded of Sister Simone Campbell. And she's one of the nuns on the bus. You've probably heard of those who travel around advocating for a more just and caring world. And they talk a lot about economics and how this system works you know and as a side story actually at one point recently just in the last five years or so she was investigated by pope benedict for her communist views you know i think sometimes you can learn a lot about somebody by who they annoy <laughs> anyways sister simone talks about business models that don't pay employees enough to live like say walmart and this means that these employees have to get additional support from the government, like food stamps and 
This means that some corporations are relying on the government to subsidize their operations, whether the government wants to or not. It's part of an exploitive business model. And I need to name a really awkward truth. This church does not yet pay a living wage to all its employees. We're doing better every year. We certainly do better than Walmart. And I'm hoping that we can fix this with the next budget. But we need to own that. We need to own that as a, as a religious community. All this critique that we're hearing is making me hopeful that we're at a turning point about capitalism. Now, there's so much to say about how capitalism causes huge systemic problems and how our broken political systems won't address those problems. And I could make this a sermon about advocacy and organizing, but I don't want to today. For today's sermon, I want to talk about the personal. I want to talk about our hearts and souls. I want to talk about what capitalism does to our souls. What does it do? What is the cost to our spiritual well-being of living in late-stage capitalism? Not good. I could offer a very simple proof of the corrupting influence of wealth by talking about the billionaires whose wealth means they could just do they could do just about anything that their hearts desire. Do they desire to replace every lead water pipe in the country, starting in Flint, Michigan? Do they desire to pay off the medical debt of millions of people? Do they desire to give every family access to early childhood education? They do not. Their heart's desire is to look past all the suffering that is around them on Earth and choose to buy themselves rides in space. If that's not an indictment of extreme wealth, I don't know what is. But I want to talk about the impact on us, the impact of living in this late-stage capitalist world on us mere financial mortals who live from paycheck to paycheck and have debts and try to keep it together. We live in a society that is permeated through and through with the marketplace. The marketplace. And it's just like living in a racist country. There is no avoiding internalizing the ideas that we've been marinating in our whole lives. We've been marinating in these ideas of, of the whole world as being a marketplace. So first and foremost, living in a capitalist society means that we are bombarded with the idea that our worth is dependent on our ability to participate in the market. Our worth is based on our ability to work for pay, or more to the point, earn money. And of course, higher pay work is more valued than lower paid work. Our worth is based on our ability to acquire the right things, right being dictated by our corporate overlords. Our jobs become our identities. This means that the the sacred work of understanding our own meaning and purpose gets perverted and twisted into just finding the right employment and being really good at that job. We're so much more than that, right? We're so much more than that. And for folks like me who grew up upper middle class, it's easy to forget 
that for folks born into different circumstances, this kind of self-definition through like getting a great job or whatever isn't remotely an option. And for me to assume otherwise is classist. It's classism. You know, our first principle is that everyone has worth and that has nothing to do with financial worth, nothing to do with dollars and cents. And this idea of productivity as worth can really infect us. I know I have internalized the persistent message that I have to do more to simply be good enough. We have to earn more money. We have to give more money. We have to work more. We have to serve more. Who here lives with a constant internal refrain of, oh, I am so busy. Living in a pervasive market culture can encourage us to develop habits, habits that we don't examine. That idea of having to do more to be worthy is one of those habits. But there's also the unexamined ways that we try to satisfy our spiritual hungers. I am 100% guilty of buying things to make myself feel better. I remember a period of pretty dark depression in my life. I was living in Boston. I was unemployed. I was living on my credit cards. And one day I felt like I was at the breaking point and I went out and I spent 800 bucks on clothes. Came home with bags and bags of clothes. And the really messed up thing is that for a little while, a few days maybe, it did make me feel better. In market culture, it's really tempting to rely on the empty calories of acquisition, of buying, to address our spiritual aching. Sometimes it's not just material acquisition. Sometimes it's not buying things. It's like social media sets us up for the cycle of craving and satisfaction over and over again as we scroll. Again, I'm looking at myself here too. Scroll and scroll, looking for that ego boost, looking for that affirmation, that endorphin hit, and casting away our precious time on earth. Guilty as charged. Seeking to fill some spiritual hole. And I think that's a function of how living in the capitalist mindset limits our imaginations. And maybe that's the most tragic piece of it all, of all, the limiting of our imaginations. You know, being in a market culture, it really narrows the definition of what a successful life looks like. When we imagine a good life for ourselves, how often do we imagine just being content with what we have? Now, before I go any further with this idea of being content with what we have, I want to be clear that if a person does not have health care, does not have a living wage, safe and affordable, safe and dependable housing, they should not be content with simply what they have. For those of us who do, those of us who have that baseline of wealth, we should not be content with anyone else not having health care and a living wage and safe and dependable housing. We should all be angry and heartbroken about that. But once those baseline needs are met, can we imagine a good life that doesn't include overwork? That doesn't include the striving, the treadmill of earning more to buy more? Can we imagine simplicity? 
can we imagine a good life that doesn't involve self-promotion or or fame the idea that a good life is that we're enough already I know that we can I know that we can imagine that but because we're swimming in the water of market culture you know, we're like fish in the water of market culture we have to push ourselves to imagine new other ways of being so we see we see the soul damage that we receive in this horrendous system. There's more, of course. I never got to the cost of living in an environmentally damaged world, for example. It's a whole other set of sermons. So how do we protect and heal our souls going forward? What do we do now that we know that we're here? And I have a few practical ideas. First, to counter the disease of being overly busy, the 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 mandatory business that that market culture seems to require from us we need to find ways to cultivate stillness and being in the present now i bet that you're expecting me to recommend meditating and i do because it's one of my core spiritual practices even though i'm terrible at it but there are plenty of other things that we can do that draw us in so intently that we forget about thinking about what's next. I sometimes get to that place when I'm in a yoga class and I, I finally stop trying to anticipate what the instructor is going to ask us to do next. I just wait for it. And there are lots of other little, you know, I think often physical practices that can help us with slowing down, needlepoint or knitting, a nice walk when it's a cooler part of the day. Even doing a jigsaw puzzle can help us step off that treadmill. And if you want to go deep, the practice of observing the Sabbath or Shabbat, taking a full night and day off, is an even deeper way of unplugging and escaping the hectic charge through our days. Anti-capitalist to observe Shabbat. This intentional taking of breaks does something really important beyond simply giving us a moment's rest. It cultivates our ability to observe the state of our spiritual well-being. When we stop, we can observe the state of our spiritual well-being. I was talking about this work of a Quaker friend of mine you know, who are good at being quiet, good at stopping. And she said that she has a practice where she watches for the things that make her heart feel small and tight not expansive and generous. She watches for those things, for those things that shrink her heart. And she tries to identify those corrosive elements that are shrinking her heart. And then she tries to stop them or at least step away from them. And we can go further. We can intentionally develop our muscles of being content with what we have. And the way to do that is to cultivate an intentional practice of gratitude. It's a simple thing. Take a regular time during the day. It could be when you first wake up or when you lay your weary head down to sleep or before a meal. Just pick a few things that you're grateful for. doesn't need to be a complete list. Who's got time for that? Just pick a few things that you are grateful for that feel present or urgent in the moment. Maybe you're noticing the weather outside is terrible and you become grateful for you know, a warm house or a cool house and name those. 
keep naming them because contentment is a muscle. Contentment is a habit and it benefits from use. But we can't stop at contentment because that might become complacency. We also need to pay attention to the victims of capitalism. Those folks who are used up, tossed aside, crushed in body and spirit. We need to let ourselves be a little heartbroken for the world. Now, we want to be careful not to do this to the point of total anguish or paralysis, but we do want to do it enough to be heartbroken enough just to keep alive that discomfort that keeps us paying attention. That discomfort can be the grain of sand that becomes the pearl of justice. And we can actively educate ourselves about other ways of imagining an economy. And, you know, I think the people of faith should seriously, should be thinking seriously about Marxism and socialism. You know, I'm actually reading this book, um, Conquest of Bread by the anarcho-communist Peter Kropotkin. And he talks about uh, poverty and scarcity and mutual aid, you know, it was written in 1892, but it is holding up well in 2021. And there are lots of folks imagining better ways of doing things. My friend Chuck Collins, who is a Unitarian Universalist, he writes powerfully about income inequality, and he might be a good place for folks to start who want to learn more about how to do a just economy. And by the way, all these book references, um, they're in the chat, and we'll put them in the chat one more time at the end of the sermon. Um, so don't feel like you have to stop and look them up right now. So we've spoken about the practices here that we can do as individuals to counter the rotten effects of being in a consumerist society, those effects to ourselves. But there's two things, uh, two points I want to make about this, these practices. First, fixing this system will take a lot more than just some thoughtful individuals making different decisions about where they shop or how they spend their leisure time. Not to take away from that, but it's going to take movements and massive government interventions to change things. And I also don't want to make folks feel like they're personally responsible for changing the entire broken system. We don't have to own it all. We have to live our lives and live with ourselves and hopefully you know, be part of a larger thing too that might, that might change things for the better. I think ultimately the work of surviving capitalism and even eventually creating a just economy is going to require that we continue to cultivate compassion. We see a pot beyond ourselves. And I want to finish with a story about Margaret Mead that, the, that Dr. Ira Bayek tells in his book, The Best Care Possible, A Physician's Quest to Transform Care Through the End of Life. So in the book, he tells the story, the anthropologist Margaret Mead was asked by a student what she considered to be the first time, first sign of civilization in a culture. The first sign of civilization in a culture. And Mead said that the first sign of, a, of civilization in an ancient culture was a femur that she found, femur is a thigh bone, that had been broken and then healed. And Mead explained that in the animal kingdom, if you break your leg, you die. Can't run from danger. Can't get to the river for a drink or 
hunt for food. At that point, you're just meat for prowling beasts. No animal survives a broken leg long enough for the bone to heal. Now, a broken femur that has healed is evidence that someone has taken the time to stay with the one who fell. They bound up the wound, they carried the person to safety, and they tended the person through recovery. Helping someone else through difficulty is where civilization starts. We are at our best when we serve others. That's the end of the quote. Well, I'm afraid we're still far from that as a society, but I'm praying that we find our way to an economy and a society that is truly civilized. May it be so. Let's take a moment to practice generosity. The Brain Injury Alliance of New Mexico is our Change for the Future recipient for the months of June, July, and August. The Brain Injury Alliance of New Mexico provides information, referral, support, and advocacy for people in New Mexico with brain injuries. You can make an offering online by clicking on the link that we'll put in the chat box. And if you prefer not to give online, you can simply mail a check to the church and include Change for the Future on the memo line. Show me the prison Show me the jail Show me the prisoners Whose life has gone pale And I'll show you young one With so many there but for fortune go you and I mm. show me the alley show me the train show me the hobo as he sleeps out in the rain and i'll show you a young one with so many reasons why Show me the drunkard 
she stumbles out the door And I'll show you a young one With so many reasons why There but for fortune Go you and I Show me the country where the bombs had to fall. Show me the ruins of a building once so tall. And I'll show you a young land with so many reasons why there but for fortune go you What is generously given is received with gratitude. Thank you on behalf of First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque, and thank you on behalf of the Brain Injury Alliance of New Mexico. We sure appreciate it. We're approaching the end of our service. If you'd like to hang out in a virtual kind of coffee hour, it's BYOC, bring your own coffee. Just stay on, the, stay on the Zoom call until the end of the credits and you'll be placed in a breakout room. And as always, we have a discussion question for you. A discussion, your discussion question today, whether of yourself or friends or family, is how do you find contentment with what you have? How do you find contentment with what you have? And that's in the chat. So uh, let's extinguish our candles and chalices. What do you say? May we imagine a new economy where all are valued and all are protected. Go in peace, gentle people, and practice radical love.